now. Anybody else there? Anybody else? Man, I, I, had, to, I had to stop reading the news, and I had to stop reading uh, most of my social media. And uh, I'm, I uh, actually just finished a book I borrowed from Dwayne, uh, Gulag Archipelago, and it was a little more cheerful than it seems like the news is right now. Uh, a little less angry. Um, I uh, it's about the constant or the Stalin's uh, camps in in Siberia. Um, the uh, the world feels like it's out of control, right? I mean, and it's not just like it's not just the news. It's not just collapse happening um, in Afghanistan. It's not just um, crazy international crisis. Um, it's not just dictators and insane people. It's not just, um, golly, American politics, though I think it's about two years running a chaos there, um, if not more. It depends, I guess, on who you're talking to. Um, it feels like everything is just out of control. Um, I, I remember once years ago, uh, I was with a group of clients. We had taken up to Minnesota, and we were in canoes, and we got... We made some choices regarding our route, and, and they were not great choices. These were big, long metal canoes. We're carrying, you know, food and camping gear, and, and none of us, I mean, I had, I had paddled a canoe before, and we had another guy who had paddled quite a bit, but all the kids were like inner city kids, and I think a couple of them didn't know how to swim. Uh, but they learned. You throw a kid in a, in a set of rapids, and they'll learn to swim real quick. Um, shocking. And we, we steered into an area where there were rapids where we should have had rubber boats and helmets and life vests, and we didn't. And I remember we lost a canoe along the way. It rolled over, and all our gear disappeared. And, and I remember going through rocks and feeling the boat shift and hit and want to catch and bend. And then, like, you're fighting to try and get off, and it goes another way. And it, it is, in, in looking back, I, I remember it as being so exhilarating and exciting but it's weird how memory works. It was out of control, and it was dangerous, and, and it, was, it was terrible. But I didn't realize it at the time. Well, I realized it at the time, and now looking back, I was like, oh, that was exciting. Um, that is kind of where I feel like things are. And even in my own life, where we're trying to move, and I'm trying to deal with kids going to school, and I'm trying to everything. You know what I mean? Is that just me? Anybody trying to figure out how to get harvest done? trying to figure out how to get this piece of equipment fixed and who's going to run and pick up that part or you're planning a wedding in like two weeks and you're trying to figure out how to do that or, you know, hypothetically or whatever else it is that you might be doing. Like there are times when everything feels like it's like it's that set of rapids and rocks and canoes, right? You're in the wrong boat, you got the wrong paddles, you got the wrong gear and you wandered into the wrong neighborhood. And nothing is going to go well from here on out. Anybody ever feel that way? Anybody in that spot? And I, I think um, we're in Daniel chapter 4. The, this is the last chapter we're going to do in Daniel for the year. And I want to talk about this for a second. Um, the main idea as I go forward is God is in control. Everybody with me? Um, God is in control. There is no moment when God ceases to be in control. And in this story, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar um, in a position where God is going to call him to the carpet, and, and this is going to happen. And um, next week, we're going to look at the results of it, but God is about to call Nebuchadnezzar to the carpet, 
And most of the commentaries, almost everything I read on this, talks about his sin, his humiliation, and his repentance as a model for Christians. And that's there, but the larger message, I, I had to really work to find even acknowledgement of the larger message. And the larger message is, like aimed at the Jewish people who are, you know, probably either just out of exile or still in exile as this is being written. And that is Nebuchadnezzar, this king, only conquered you because God made it happen. He only rose to the height he was at because God raised him. And God could in a very moment take it away in the same way as he chose the Jewish people because he chose them. Not because they were wonderful, not because Abraham was super obedient all the time because you know, read Abraham's story. He made a couple of mistakes along the way, and just about everybody who came after him messed up. And in fact, there were spots in the Exodus where God's like, all right, that's it, I'm going to kill all of you. And Moses is like, whoa, 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 whoa. But then, you know, like, these are your people. Like, everybody will know that you brought your people out here and they died. Like, we don't need to start over. Just take care of it, you know. And, and, and like, God is always in control. God is always capable. God is always... Um, like like adjusting everything and every little thing if that is true every little thing happens in harmony with his will um, and so god can give to nebuchadnezzar and he can take away god can grant blessing to the people of israel and he can take away um, and the larger message of this text is always going to be that because that's the message of the book right everywhere along the way we learn god's in control we see nebuchadnezzar's first dream and his first dream was the statue. And what we learn from that is God controls the leaders. God controls the fate of nations. God controls everything. We, we see um, Shadrach, and Benny being tossed into the, into the fire. And God is in control and he saves them. But even if he hadn't, God was still in control and he allowed it to happen. Is basically the idea there, right? It says, well, even if God doesn't save us, we will never bow down to your statue. By the way, did everybody get a copy of the outline? If you did not get a copy of the outline and a writing utensil, you should raise your hand, and my lovely assistant Josh will hand them out. No one? All right. Um, so that is our main idea. Now we're going to dig into the text, and we're going to do large swaths of text here because it's a lot. Now I don't want to get bogged down. I don't want to do an hour-long sermon. King Nebuchadnezzar to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God have done for me. Now, real quick, this is a letter. An epistle is actually, I think, the right technical word for it, but it's a letter. And it opens the way letters open. And who is writing it? Lo and behold, it's King Nebuchadnezzar himself, right? Um, this is a very unique thing in the ancient world. It is not a small deal. It is the only letter that appears in the Old Testament. And it is the only example of a pagan writing a chunk of scripture. Weirdly enough. But I guess if God could speak through Balaam's donkey, and he talks through me sometimes, he could probably use Nebuchadnezzar just fine. Right? <laughs> So he is about to tell what God has done. He is about to reveal wonders and signs. And this is not a small deal. It is not a small deal because it's just not who the guy is, right? Like we're way out of his neighborhood right now. So then he goes on, he says, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. 
His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, there are a couple of real interesting little bits and pieces. I'm going to try and do this fast. Um, First off, Nebuchadnezzar is probably still a pagan at this point, right? Like, there's not... Some people argue he has, like, like repented and sees God as, like, above all other gods. There's some people who argue that he didn't. It's really not clear. I'm kind of of the opinion that he... He's really nominal, if nothing else, right? He's right on the line. Um, but he is acknowledging that God is powerful, that God has authority, that God is in this position of significant, like, like omnipotence over the world. And that's not a small thing. Like he has said, look, you know, can't get around it. Um, the little psalm that's in there, right? Greater is signs, how mighty are his wonders. The kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. The words and the phrasing here over and over again reflect the themes of the book so far, right? God's kingdom is everlasting. God's people are under his protection. God controls who rules, who, who is king from generation to generation. Like this is this recurring theme. It fits perfectly in the book. By the way, it's also written in Aramaic. Um, we've mentioned this a couple times. The entire Old Testament is written in Hebrew, except these seven chapters. The first seven chapters of this book are written in Aramaic. Um, John made an interesting suggestion to me that it was so that the Jewish people wouldn't read it and find out that, you know, sometimes the pagans like won out. Uh, there's a good argument there. I actually think that part, that's probably a part of it, but I think part of it too is um, this is the letter to the nations to witness to who God is. I think this is God testifying about himself through the exile. And specifically because his people got the tar beat out of them, and dragged away as slaves, right? And so he has to kind of come out and say, all right, look, here's what I've done. While my people are in exile, I've saved them, I've protected them, I've acted, I've demonstrated my authority, I've demonstrated my power, I've demonstrated my dominion. And even the mighty Nebuchadnezzar, um, I mean, you start thinking about the ancient world before Rome. Let's say, yeah, before Rome, like world-conquering kings... I can think of one other. Anybody else? Can anybody think of one other? Not really. It's not a common thing, right? Like, but Nebuchadnezzar, most everybody has heard of him. He is a name, a real name, a dominant big name, and he built one of the wonders of the world and everything else. Like, he's awesome. But even he backs up and says, God is God. God is all-powerful. God is almighty. So we're going to move on so we don't get too bogged down. I know. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. Sound familiar? This is actually the last bit about Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to die a little bit after this. So this is our last account of him, right? And basically the first time we hear him speak or see him as a character, he is having a dream, right? This is a little bit of a bookend. Kind of wanted to point it out. Also, this is 30 years later. Right? It's 30 years after the original dream. He has conquered everything. He's not fighting with anyone. He is in a position of like very controlled power. Nobody's overthrowing him. He is at the height, at the very zenith of who he is as a man. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me an interpretation of the dream. The magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in. We've heard this list before. 
And I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Balthazar, I'm sorry, Balthazar, I'm awful with my Akkadian names, uh, after the name of my God, by the way, of my God, that's my, I think he was still a pagan, but I think he, you know, anyway, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, again, in the plural, the spirit of the holy gods, because he's a pagan, um, and I felt him, and I told him the dream, saying, O Balthazar, uh, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the vision. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. All right. So this sounds familiar and it sounds familiar on purpose. Um, except this time he pulls Daniel in. It's possible that Daniel is a person of very well, actually, we know Daniel is of high importance in the kingdom of Babylon at this point. So it might be the case that he doesn't show up for every doctor's appointment, right? He doesn't hand out every band-aid. He doesn't do every splinter. Like he has guys who do that stuff. And he, you know, it's also possible he was somewhere else. It's possible that the guys who knew the dream or who were told the dream, these pagan um, magicians and astrologers and stuff, there's the possibility, by the way, that they understood roughly what it meant but didn't want to say. Do you ever get in trouble? And it's time to come to the carpet and own it? Anyone? That's awful. And I think these guys are standing there like, if we tell this guy what this means, we are hosed. Right? Because nobody wants to tell the king bad news. Like, at all. And when you start reading the dream, kind of obvious it ain't good. And so, he is there, he pulls Daniel in, he says, all right, tell me what I need to know. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to the heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Now, real quick, the tree as a metaphor in the Old Testament is often either used like in association with who God is or to talk about men and their pride. So men and their pride, men in this place where like I am everything. And we're going to see this in a second, right? Like this is, this is everybody's already got the idea where this is going, right? I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in my bed and behold, a watcher. By the way, there's a whole lot of discussion about this. I don't want to get into it. It is a much more complicated topic than I want to share right now. A watcher is an angel. Got it? A holy one came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts of the field from under it, or flee from under it, and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump and its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let them be wet with the the dew of the heaven. Let his portion 
be with the beasts of the grass of the field. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let the beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. So, anybody want to guess why the pagan astrologer guys didn't want to explain this? <laughs> like, this is a first, first class, like, one-way ticket to the, the, the furnace, right? Or, you know, to be dragged apart by horses or something else. I mean, this is bad, bad news for a guy who might kill you and tear your house down and turn it into a garbage dump. Like, because he does that. Um, a guy who might set you on fire. Like, this is bad because it's not good. It's bad. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high God rules the heavens or the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Now, we need to pause there a second. That is the purpose. So like most Bible scholars argue that the purpose statement of the entire letter is right in the beginning, that I might tell you of God's signs and wonders. I'm going to tell you, in my opinion, they've missed the point. This is the point. And I'll read it again just to make sure we all got it, right? That they are, uh, This sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, or not willing, but but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Um, real quick, God's power and authority in this situation is totally undeniable, right? And that's actually where the letter starts. God's in control. God has power. I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen it. There's no getting away from it. God is God. Um, He is undeniable. And in this instance, he is again speaking to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream, um, and he's going to tell him the future, right, again, but this time it's to prepare him for correction. Um, Real quick, real quick, real quick. One of the things that came out in the first dream, for those of y'all who weren't here or don't remember, um, Nebuchadnezzar was chosen by God as a vessel of his punishment for his people. Nebuchadnezzar was raised up by God. The prophets say it over and over again, and in this instance we see, or in the first dream we've seen it, And here we are again where Nebuchadnezzar is in this spot and he's hearing the truth that God has chosen you. He has raised you up and he can take it away and he will take it away. And the time has come. You will be corrected. God is warning him. And I think at least part of that, there's two big reasons here, actually, I think. First, I think he's giving him an opportunity to repent. Anybody want to take bets on that? No. Really prideful, powerful men do not like saying, I was wrong. Actually, most men and young boys and just about everybody else does not like saying, I screwed up. It is one of the, I, in my opinion, one of the best signs of character in, in an individual is the ability to say, I messed up. I dropped the ball. 
I sinned. I rebelled. I knew I shouldn't, but I did. Um, Anyway, because I think sometimes Christians don't admit, and we don't confess, and we don't say, because we're worried about what other people will think of us, right? Anybody got that stuff? But the reality is that saying and confessing and talking and being in community and like like relationship with the people around us and with God, um, it grows us. It makes us better. It helps us become more Christ-like. So we're going to go on from there. Then Daniel, whose name was Balthazar, I'm going to say it. I should just say it different every time. Um, was dismissed, or excuse me, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. So I think part of the reason is he kind of likes the king, right? Like if you read Daniel's interactions, I think he's okay with King Nebuchadnezzar, even though he's a pagan and all this other stuff. Like I think he kind of likes him. But also there's the distinct possibility that this is the end for him. Like it just is. Like the the guy could have him chopped up. I mean, there's a reason that false prophets always tell nice news, right? It's because, like, that's easy to hear. It's hard to hear bad stuff. If you read um, uh, Jeremiah is a fun one. If you read Jeremiah's life and Ezekiel's life, all kinds of bad stuff happened to them because they kept telling the kings, you're sinning, stop it, God's going to destroy you. And they're like, all right, well, throw that guy in prison. Throw that guy in a well. Throw that guy, you know, I mean, it's bad, right? Like, because kings are powerful and they don't like bad news. Um, and so the king answered and said, Belchazar, uh, Beltware, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belchazar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached the heaven and it was visible to the, whole, to the ends of the earth, the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all under the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become very strong. Your greatness has grown and reached the heavens, and your dominion, the ends of the earth. Um, I cannot help in reading this. There's a great line in the book of Kings, First Kings, right? Or is it is it First Samuel? It's First Samuel. Um, you are that man, right? That's Nathan talking to King David. The reality is that prophets almost always bring correction. They say you screwed up, and in this instance, it is you are that tree, which sounds a lot less impressive. Um, But, King, you are that tree. You are the one who has grown up so big and the whole world eats off your plate and you bring abundance and wealth and everything else to all the people around you. You are that king, and it is awesome. And the only reason you ended up there was God gave it to you. The only reason the success happened is God gave it to you. God raised you up. God gave you this position. This is it. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from the heaven and saying, chop down this tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of the heaven, um, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. 
This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time will pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. So watch this. He's going to lose his mind, and he's going to suffer what is uh, actually the diagnosis, lycanthropy, weirdly enough. It's uh, probably the root of... um, lycanthropy is the root of uh, werewolf myths, right? He's going to believe he's an animal, and he's going to live in the fields, and he's going to eat grass. And actually, it's interesting. We'll maybe talk about it a little more this week. It is an, it is an illness that happens. And actually, I read last night a case study about a man who believed he was a house cat. Not making it up, completely true, but not all the time. It's an illness that strikes either constantly or now and again. And this guy believed he was a house cat, but he had a full-time job and held it. Not in a pet store, I don't think. But I, or a cat cafe, because I didn't, you know. But, I mean, who knows? <laughs> but he had a full-time job and he went to work, but he also was mentally ill, right? And the king, a couple of things might happen here. His son might take over. And there is a strong indication that his son might have taken over the kingdom for him for a little while while he was crazy, right? It is also possible that um, that he was crazy part of the time and part of the time not. We don't really know. The text doesn't tell us. We do know that his hair grew long. That's in the next chapter. I won't talk about that yet. Or the next sermon. I won't talk about that today. We do know that he's about to go crazy and he's about to be humbled and humiliated in a way that is really kind of next level. Um, but it's going to wake him up. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that they may perhaps be, there may be perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Okay. So God gives him a warning about his own inaction, right? He says, guys, stop sinning, stop doing this and stop ignoring the poor. Right? Take care of people who need to be taken care of. That's your job, your king. This is what you're supposed to do. Um, also, and watch this because this is huge. This prophecy has a very strange parallel to the events of the exile that have happened to the Jewish people. And I think a central chunk of what's happening here is God is not speaking to Nebuchadnezzar. He's speaking to the Jewish people. He's saying, listen, I picked Nebuchadnezzar not because he's awesome, but because I picked him. Right, And I picked Abraham, not because Abraham was awesome, but because I picked him. And you are my chosen people, not because you're awesome, but because I'm awesome. This is God speaking, not me. Um, I think God chose his people. He raised them up. He gave them the land. He offered them success, and they rebelled. And he would correct them with signs and wonders and huge, crazy events. And then they would repent. And a little while later, they would rebel again. And then they would rebel again, and the prophets would come and say, hey, you're screwing up, knock it off, just like the king, right? He throws Rakshak and Benny in the furnace, and they survive. He's like, oh, my gosh, your God is awesome. He hears the interpretation of the dream. He's like, oh, my gosh, your God knows everything. That's amazing. 
And every time he continues as a pagan. And so now he's in this spot where God sends his prophet, which actually technically Daniel's not a prophet. Weirdly enough, ask me about it later. I'm not explaining it right now. But he sends his representative to speak. And the representative says, guy, repent. Be different. Go the other way. Fix it. Anybody want to take bets on whether or not he does? He doesn't. And God waits. And about a year later, everything comes apart. Um, And he goes to live with the beasts of the field. By the way, very similar to Isaiah, who comes and says, you're running out of chances, guys. Repent. Repent. And then we get the next guy who comes along and says, Jeremiah, and says, hey, repent. God is going to destroy you. And they don't. And so God destroys them. And he sends them off to live with the nations. Or the beasts of the field, if you're really arrogant and Jewish in the ancient world, right? Beneath us. You're going to go live amongst them like animals, not like my people anymore. For seven periods of time. Now, it probably was seven years for Nebuchadnezzar. Could have been seven weeks, seven months, but seven years seems like the strongest argument. I know I'm going long. How long, uh, John, how long were the Jewish people in exile? They were actually in Babylon for 70 years, or if you're so given, seven periods of time. And so part of what God is telling his people right now is, I'm in control, and I have authority, and this guy, this guy did not beat you because he's awesome and you're weak and I'm weak, but because you sinned and I used him to to correct you and to prove to you he's not awesome on his own. I'm going to bring him low to demonstrate the truth of this. And you're going to see what happened to you happened to him. And then when he repents, I'm going to put him back where he came from and restore him to his kingdom. Just like I'm going to do for you. And ultimately what we come to is repent, trust God, repent, follow God. Don't worry, God is in control. It may seem like it may seem like the news has given us awful stuff. It may seem like evil is winning around the world. It may seem like the righteous man is failing in our neighborhoods, in our cities, in our states, and pretty much everywhere around us. It may seem like nobody's at the wheel. But in reality, God is still at the wheel. It's a little like a roller coaster. That first moment when you drop, you know what I mean? And everything feels out of control. And in reality, that roller coaster ain't going to leave the track, ideally. Because it's under control. And we learn through those moments. God's favor on this king was a matter of his choice. And he's showing it, right? And he's going to demonstrate it again by bringing him low. Um, Real quick. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addressed you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Real quick, if Titus, my beloved son, um, if I catch him stealing from the grocery store, what am I going to do? It ain't going to be fun, I'll guarantee you that. 
Why am I going to do that? Why would I spank my kid? Why would I punish him when I love him so much? Do it because I love him. I address hard things with my family, with you all sometimes, because I love you. Right? And God sometimes corrects us. God sometimes brings about hardship and difficulty and punishment and everything else because he loves us. Um, It's not always the case that bad things happen as a matter of punishment, but sometimes it does. And the scriptures makes it clear that sometimes it does. It's been an abused concept in history, and so we don't like to say that. Sometimes bad things happen because we brought it on ourselves. Right? I was talking to Josh once, and he had a stomach ache, and he was complaining about how sick he felt. And I asked, what did you eat today? And I think he had bought a 10-pound bag of like gummy bears at the grocery store and eaten them all throughout the course of the day. Anybody want to guess why he felt sick? Because he was stressed out for being in our house. Maybe not. Allergies, no. Um, in reality, sometimes we experience punishment because of, the, because of the choices we make. Sometimes it's just like because the world is broken. And I'm not saying hurricanes happen because or anything else. I'm saying sometimes bad things happen because this is the way God teaches us. Um, I'm going to jump ahead here. We're going to jump into the application here. And what do we do with this? First off, understand God is in control, right? God has redeemed you through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. If you belong to him, you are forgiven and you are made whole. You may hide your sins. You may rebel. You may do your own thing. And guess what? Because God loves you, He ain't going to let you wander into traffic. Because God loves you, your conscience will speak to you. Your conscience will poke you. He will wake you up and he will slowly make you new through your training and teaching. I can think of all kinds of awful, stupid things that I have done over the years that I have had fixed by bad situations and by having to stand on the carpet and address God over what I've done wrong. Anybody else? Sometimes being hungry and lonely and tired and poor teaches us perseverance, which is from James, right? Consider it pure joy when you experience suffering of all kind. Uh, Most of us are not going to receive visions. Sorry. Right? Most of us won't. Some people do. I believe that happens. Most of us won't. In reality, God speaks to us constantly. He speaks to us through the scriptures. You say, well, God never tells me what I'm supposed to do or how I'm supposed to live. And he never gives me comfort. And he never tells me he loves me. Usually I ask, have you read your scriptures? Well, no. Why would I read that? Because that's the primary means of how God speaks to us, right? And I'm going to tell you the secondary meaning is his Holy Spirit. Sometimes he points us in the right directions. Sometimes he speaks through us, and it's a little like being a ventriloquist dummy. Um, Sometimes he does all kinds of crazy things, but most often, most often, it is through our conscience. Anybody ever do a wrong thing, and it felt bad, you were ashamed, and then the second time you did it, it wasn't so bad? And then the third time, it wasn't so bad at all? And then by the 50th time, you didn't care? Because our conscience speaks to us. God's Holy Spirit pokes us. And if you ignore him, eventually you get a hard heart and you don't hear anymore. Generally in that spot, it requires a little more serious waking up. Anybody ever been there? I have. And it's a blessing when it happens. Why? Because God loves you. Because God cares too much about you to let you be stupid. The exile happened... Because God loved his people and he needed to wake them up. 
and it paved the way for the coming of Christ. God works in us through his spirit, but we have to have soft hearts. We have to listen. We have to obey. We have to seek him out. And seeking him out is hard because there's so much good stuff on TV. And people are saying dumb things on the Internet. And i got to correct them. Finally, sin often comes through our comfort and inaction. Um, Sometimes what's involved in being holy is acting holy, not just being holy. Right? So this king has started to figure out who God is, but he doesn't change. Knowing the truth of who God is is very different than obeying God. I know my wife. I love my wife. I know there are things my wife wants me to do every day, like take my shoes off when I come in the house, right? And come home every night and not stay out all night, right? She doesn't want me to flirt with other women. And she doesn't want me to, like, do all kinds of other stuff, spend money on things that are worthless. And I know these things. Knowing them is very different than doing them. God wants to talk to me. Knowing that is different than praying. God wants me to read the word so I know him better. Knowing that is different than, isn't it? God wants me to have pure thoughts. God wants me to worship nothing but him. But knowing that is different than doing it because there are so many fun things to worship. My central message here, guys, is God is in control. And if God is in control on the days when the canoe is going sideways and the rocks are in front of you and the guys around you are tipping over and you turn on the news and fire is raining from the sky and people are falling off of the landing gear of airplanes, which is about the most horrible thing I've seen in a decade. And, you know, women and children are being persecuted and and it seems like nobody's driving the boat anymore and everything seems out of control and then this guy passed away and that guy's sick and this person has walked away from me and won't talk anymore. I catch this is happening or I can't stop doing this myself. All of those things, when it feels like the canoe is just going to tip over, God's in control. And if that's true, then we have to live like it's true. I had a doctor in Indiana who told me to quit smoking because it's bad for me. But I swear that guy smelled like cigarettes every time I walked in the door. He knew it was true, but he didn't live like it was true. My challenge, my encouragement, my, my push for you is to look at your heart and ask yourself, Am I paying attention or have I hardened my heart so much that I can't hear God's words? Am I pushing myself in the direction of rebellion constantly? Um, Let's close in prayer and I'll let you go. Um, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us today. Help me to uh, help us to be people who represent you. And, and Lord God, in the chaos and the misery and the, and the fear and the, especially with the news telling us that the world's on fire and nothing's going to be okay, as we watch horrible things happen, help us to trust that you act with reason. And that even if we don't know what that reason is, even if it hurts and it's scary and it's hopeless and it feels meaningless, that there's meaning in everything you do, Lord. There's meaning in rainy days and lack of rain. There's meaning in strife and in success. Heavenly Father, help us to trust that and help us to live like it's true. Help us to listen and act like people who know you are steering the boat. Help us to come under the lordship of the one who bought us by his blood. Amen.